Good morning, church. How are you doing this morning? Great to see you here on what feels like a very early Sunday morning. Daylight savings applies to me, too. I didn't even have my microphone on yet. But we're ready. We're ready for that spirit. Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. That was beautiful. Uh, before we get started, I want to go ahead and dismiss our kids now for Revolution Kids, kindergarten through fifth grade. You guys can go upstairs now for a time of teaching and fellowship and fun. I have a feeling we're going to hear some loud footsteps this morning, and that's a good thing. The church is alive. That's right. All right. Well, this morning we are continuing in our Lenten series that we've been calling uh, Renew. That's Embracing Forgiveness in an Unapologetic World. Kind of asking some of these core questions in a world that is so quick to categorize and divide and separate and cancel. In a world that doesn't really teach us maybe what true reconciliation and forgiveness looks like. In a world that says you just need to forgive and forget and move on. Simple as that. How can we experience this sort of healing and restoration in our relationships today? What did Jesus really mean by forgiveness and reconciliation? So we've looked at many scriptures in which Jesus teaches about forgiveness uh, to see that you know, the context in which he was talking to was among a community of believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, calling for them to be reconciled to God and also reconciled to one another. That this idea of forgiveness was, was this process among a gathering of a community of believers in which they are engaging in this healing and restoration together. It's not meant to be a simple forgive and forget and just move on, get over it. So what Jesus has been talking about, what we've been talking about, is this ministry of reconciliation that's been given to us. That's only made possible because of the reconciliation that we experience with Jesus Christ, that new life that we have in Christ. So throughout this, we've also been looking at these five laws of repentance 12th century rabbi and philosopher Moses Maimonides. Uh, it was his attempt to kind of make the Torah law accessible to everyday people, to answer that simple question, what are we supposed to do and how do we do it? And he laid out this process, this, the, not so much steps that you check, but this process for how to enter in restoration among your relationships to experience this reconciliation, this renewal. So last week we looked at the first one, naming and owning harm, and we simply called that confession. Naming and owning our, our, the harm. That's, we say confession is a, a disclosure of sin, an acknowledgement of guilt or harm. It's admitting and acknowledging that we have caused harm. And that makes us squirm, as we, as we talked about last week. That makes us uncomfortable because it means we have to admit that we've been wrong. <laughs> It, it, we have to admit that we've messed up. We have to maybe do some soul work to sit, to do some introspection, and, and to look ourselves in the mirror and face the ugliest parts of ourselves that tend to want to defend and dismiss and deflect and say, no, I wasn't wrong. That wasn't me. This admitting and acknowledging harm, as we, as we saw, takes courage to face ourselves, the thing we did, understand it, so that we can learn from it. And so this, this morning we're going to look at that second step. 
It was starting to change. Starting to change, which we're going to call repentance. If last week was confession, the theme of this week is repentance. It's a pretty churchy word. You might think you already know a pretty good deal about it, repentance. Um, we, talk, we talk a fair amount about that, right? It's this feeling of a sense of remorse, contrition, uh, of regret for past wrongs. But here's the key. It, it's usually accompanied by a commitment to personal change and actual actions that show and prove a change for the better. It's this kind of resolve to live a more responsible life. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to make a change. Now that I know better, I'm going to do better. To repent, as you might heard, is to, to turn from sin and to dedicate oneself to the amendment of one's life. It's to, to turn around and go in a completely different direction. You maybe have heard that definition of repent. It involves a turning. It involves a change. It's not just enough to acknowledge that you've been wrong. And hear me, we're not even to like the apology part or the forgiveness part yet. This is before that. This is starting to make the change. Once you know better, you can do better. Obviously, as some of you know, if you were here on Ash Wednesday, I was out of town. I was with some of our crew down in the Dominican Republic with Go Ministries. Uh, but as I heard, uh, Micah brought the teaching that night and did just an incredible job setting the stage, setting the scene for us for this Lenten journey on her teaching on repentance and this idea of it, of it being an invitation to return to the Lord, return. She read from the prophet Joel, uh, chapter 2, who says this, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments, return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. She noted that the, the prophet here is, is issuing from God, it's a general invitation for the whole community, the gathering of all of the people to return, to return to God. And it's not just with the actions, right, of fasting and, 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 and weeping and not just a tearing of your garments as a sign of, your, uh, of sort of your lament, but it's rend your hearts. Of sort of noting even then that this is not just an action, but it's a, it's a heart thing as well. A contrite, a contrite heart, that desire to change, to be different, return. Return to the Lord for, I love this part, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That line might be familiar to you. It shows up several times throughout scripture. For the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. For the Lord is merciful. For the Lord is good and compassionate. It's, it shows up in some of the Psalms. Uh, it shows up later in the New Testament with this focus on the goodness of God. Come home, rend your heart, return to me. Last week when we talked about confession, we talked about it as this sort of like this step of surrender, uh, of sort of surrendering your false self, that ego that says, I have to be right, I have to protect myself at all costs, I have to deflect and defend 
So that first step of confessing our sins is sort of a, a rending of, our, of, that, of that heart, of that false self, so that we can return as we return to the table. I talked about the table as sort of a coming home. Return to me, return to God, return to who you really are, your true self that's hidden in Christ with God. That true self, this is the truth, that you are loved even before you do anything good or bad, you are loved. So return to that identity, return to that true self. You can return to the truth of who you are in Christ that's loved, redeemed, and set free. Another place this idea of sort of repentance and the goodness of God shows up is in the beginning of the book of Romans. And Paul is writing a pretty long letter to the church in Rome. It's the closest thing we have to Paul of like a systematic theology of like this is, this is what he believes. The first several chapters are doozies of Romans because he goes into pretty good depth and detail about the law and what it means, what it means for, for the people then of the day. But then also his understanding of the gospel. And he says this at the beginning of Romans. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And then he goes on to a little bit more detail talking about how the unrighteous live. It's a little brutal. Goes into details about and describing how the unrighteous live. And he says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil and covetousness and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. They are slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, <laughs> inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, Ruthless. <laughs> I don't know if it's the reason maybe we don't read this on Sunday mornings. I don't know. It's like it's time for Lent, time to, to beat ourselves up. No, that's not true. This is how the unrighteous live, he says. But he goes on. He says, hey, before you think I'm quick to judge, before you think that this is a separation of us versus them. Beware, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Haughty, boastful, ruthless. Hear that list? We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Beware, including you. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will not escape the judgment of God? The foot is level, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? This is. And he goes on. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is a really harsh sort of couple passages of scripture here. 
that, that it's, you know, we get uncomfortable and we want to skip over, but I think that's the key right there that I've highlighted, is that it's God's kindness that's meant to lead you to repentance. Return to me, the one who loves you and created you and restores you and redeems you. God's kindness, it's meant to be that safe place to come home. That safe place to come home where you find grace and love and renewal. But it requires us to turn. To turn away from the unrighteous living, to turn away from our own sin, and to turn toward God. To repent, to move in a different direction. Many of you know that we have a Celebrate Recovery community. It's a part of our church and the steps and the teachings that they go through every week. This is the first principle number three. Consciously choose to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control. And the step within that principle, we made a decision to turn our lives and wills over to the care of God. The turning is both a surrender and a commitment to change. Friends, that's repentance. It's a surrender to our false self and our sin and our control issues and who we think that we are to turn again to God and who God says that we are. And so it's a turn. They have this trust, understand, repent, and new life. This like appeared on uh, the table we were doing Bible study last week and I was like, man, this is really good. This fits perfectly. And many of you said last week, that sounded really C-R-E to me (laughs) last week. That's great. It should. This is the curriculum. To trust your life to God's care completely. Surrender. To understand that it's not all on you. That we can't know all and, and, and do all the good. That we can't control everything. Understand, this comes from Proverbs 3, that we are called to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding, but to lean on God. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and we got to understand that. And then repent. Turn away from your sins. Second, turn toward God. And that, my friends, is what leads to new life in Christ. To trust, to understand, to repent, to come home. I love this quote that I found in the curriculum on this step. It says this, It seems that most people repent of their sins more from fear of punishment than from a real change of heart. But repentance is not self-loathing. It is God-loving. God isn't looking forward to punishing you. He is eagerly anticipating with open arms your turning toward him. And I, I included that. I think that's really important because if you're just to read Romans 1 through 2, It's some fear and punishment in there of coming judgment of the unrighteous. And we might misunderstand, but Paul puts it in there. It's supposed to be the kindness of God that invites you to change. God isn't looking forward to punishing you. Repentance is not self-loathing. Let me list all of the reasons that I stink. It's about God and God's love and action toward us. It's God-loving about who God says that we are and his invitation to return to him. 
And that's what leads to new life in Christ. Okay, so what could this look like today? All of this that we've set out about repentance and our understanding, what could this actually look like in our everyday lives and in in the relationships here and our families among other people who claim the name of Christ? What could this look like? This starting to change, this repentance. Well, in the book that I've been referencing sort of throughout This is failing to work now, so I'm going to rely on you, Meg, to go to just the next slide. Dana Ruttenberg says this, A person who hasn't faced their problematic traits and unhealed wounds or grappled deeply with harm caused in the past or done the work to change processes and structures will undoubtedly manage to find themselves in some variation of the same situation over and over. Her rabbi tells her, if you haven't done the work, you'll get back in the same spot. If you haven't done the work of confession and understanding the harm and learning from it and turning to make new choices, you are going to end right back up in the same spot where you caused harm to begin with. You'll find yourself in the same place. True repentance happens at the moment when a person comes into a situation similar to the one in which they had previously committed harm, and this time does it right. Reconciliation can't happen. Again, we're not even through the full process, but reconciled, restored relationships can't happen until you start to see a change and an actual contrite and repentant heart in the one who has caused harm. So I want you to imagine with me an everyday situation that you might find yourself in. Are you ready for a real-life example? No experience, but here you go. Imagine the situation between a husband or a wife, or between a son and a mother, or between a housemate and their roommate, or just among your friends. Imagine, at the end of the day, you sit down on the couch to watch a show together, or maybe to share about your day, or maybe you meet up with a friend to have lunch, and you notice that the other person sitting next to you or across from you is on their phone looking down, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. I have no experience. I'm just scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And you try to engage. You try to share about your day. You try to, you know, they say that they're listening and sort of mumbling along, but you can't help but feel like they aren't really hearing you. They miss the punchline of your joke. That's the worst. Or they miss the part where you tell about the day where you got really upset about something at work. They say, huh, for the fifth time. (laughs) And you have to repeat yourself. (laughs) And you can't help but wonder if they really care. (laughs) And you start to feel dismissed, neglected, uncared for, angry. And you know enough about life and relationships of the people that you do life with to know that these feelings, man, they fester and they grow. So you, you got to address this, right? we got to nip this in the bud. And so you compose yourself, you pray about it, and you, you go to confront this person that you love, that confess that you've been harmed. And you say, hey, the other night or the other day at lunch, I noticed that you were really consumed by your phone. (laughs) And you say these I statements, the I feel. (laughs) I feel that you're really distracted. And it made me feel X, Y, and Z. The other partner in that moment has a decision to make. You have two choices. 
The partner can respond and stop, look, and listen like it's a fire. <laughs> and, and you can hear them out and try to imagine how they're feeling and why they felt harmed. Or option two, you can dismiss and deflect. You can immediately point fingers to the other person. Oh, like you're never on your phone ever. <laughs> Let's go with that. I was working, or I was reading, or I was, um, I, I had some important email I had to respond to, right? Defend, deflect, dismiss. And the other person can say, okay, I know your work's very important. I respect you and how hard you work. Maybe we could find a time to set aside and unplug, to leave those phones behind so that we can connect. And then the best, if that conversation goes really well and both parties are heard, that you'll come to an agreement. Okay. This time, every week, we're going to unplug, and we're going to look each other in the eye, and we're going we're gonna, to, you know, share. <laughs> we're going to share. But then the next night, sitting on the couch, after you've had this agreement, the phone's back out, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. True repentance, my friends, doesn't happen until you start to see that change. If they don't... Stop scrolling and put that phone away. It's not true repentance. I'm going to pause here and give an editorial comment. My husband would like everybody to know that it's me. I'm the one that scrolls and scrolls and scrolls. <laughs> just so, all hearts are clear. <laughs> I'm reading something. This is important research for my next teaching. He's like, you're on Facebook. <laughs> I don't know what you're doing. So we had a conversation. A true repentant heart isn't there until you start to see a change. If a person apologizes sincerely and even offers restitution for the harm they have caused, I think this is on the next slide, she's got it, man. But then not long after that, commits the same kind of harm again, they have not repented, not really. Just sit with that for a second. That stinks, but it's true. According to Maimonides, only when a person does the work needed to become different, naturally and organically, can they even make a different choice. He says they must engage in a profound process of transformation, <laughs> of transformation. This kind of a funny everyday thing, an example of someone not being sort of engaging and scrolling. But maybe it's something else that causes harm. Maybe it's an insensitive joke that was made about someone's ethnicity or gender or background or life at work or around the dinner table or with your, with your family in Christ. You didn't mean it, but it demeaned them and it caused them harm. So unless you do the work to really understand why that was offensive or that introspective work for, for why you thought it was funny, you got to sit with yourself, face yourself and say, why did I think that was funny? It's bound to happen again. It's the work of profound work of transformation that's needed. And if you haven't heard yet, man, that takes time. That's what I want you to hear. This process of reconciliation, the world that tells us, and sometimes the church that tells you, you just need to forgive and forget. Friends, that's not real change. That's not real restoration. And that won't last. We won't experience that fullness and that reconciliation again. So Dana Rettenberg, in her work, she sort of lays out, here are some options of what real transformation can look like. This process, this is what it could look like. 
There's another long quote. It's long. I'm sorry. These days, this process of change might also involve therapy or rehab or educating oneself rigorously on the issue about which one had been ignorant or held toxic opinions. There it is. It might mean actively seeking out fresh perspectives to help shape a new understanding of a complex situation. It might involve a request to spend time with the victim to better understand the nature of the impact and the problem it caused. Or seeking out others not directly, hello, not directly involved in the situation who can help unpack the issue. Maybe a concrete action plan for making different choices in the future is needed. Maybe it's about grappling with the root causes of harm. That's step one. Some of these things may be necessary even before the confession stage. Some may be appropriate at this point in the process. And in many cases, the answer might be both. That first part of confession, to acknowledge and understand the harm that you caused, sometimes it takes education. Sometimes it takes self-work. Sometimes it takes prayer and therapy and counseling. All of that is necessary in order to repent, to turn, and to make a different choice. This process takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. But what I love about the profound process of transformation, and this is where we're going to end today, what I love about the profound process of transformation is that we know a lot about that as Wesleyan Methodists who are all about being transformed into holiness by the grace of Jesus Christ. We know all about discipleship that is a lifelong journey of transformation and change into becoming more like Jesus. And guess what? It's all a complete work of God. We believe that that's not even possible without the grace of Jesus Christ that's being poured out on us to sanctify us, to make us holy. So it's even that, that desire to even want to turn and to learn and to do better, that's all an action of God's grace at work in our lives, empowering us, motivating us, helping us, reminding us of who we are, that I don't need to rely on myself or my, my own tendencies to defend my actions, that I can stand firm in the promises of God that I'm a beloved daughter of the King, and I can face the worst because I know where I'm grounded. And I can experience that reconciliation, not just with God, but also, my friends, with one another because of the grace of Jesus Christ at work in our lives. I ended last week with that quote from Matthew 18 that says, When two or more of you are gathered together in my name, there Christ is among you. And we think of that only in terms of prayer and worship, but in fact, the context of Jesus teaching that was in moments of reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ. When you've, when you've confessed your sins to one another and acknowledged harm, and that's really uncomfortable, and that's really hard. But the promise is that the Spirit of Christ is there with you in those moments. Meg, if you'll just go to the very last slide, one more. This is my little, remember when we did Methodism? Oh, sorry, the little check. Methodism for dummies, I drew this. Can you tell I drew that? Yes, you can. That justifying moment where we've been justified by the grace of Christ and then we believe that the rest of our lives are really lived in sanctification mode, right? Of accepting that grace. That's the lifelong discipleship. All of this growth into holiness, the means of grace and worship and prayer and, and communion, all of these are means of grace for us to grow into the likeness 
of God and into the likeness of Christ and to holiness. And we're given this promise that when two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, there he is with us. The same spirit that raised him from the grave is at work in us. Motivating us, inviting us to return because God is kind and God is merciful and God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is change is possible. That should be our tagline as Methodists. Change is possible. Hope is alive because of the grace of Jesus Christ. This is hard stuff. It doesn't happen overnight. But hear me, reconciliation is a complete work of God. But we have to turn. We have to surrender and trust in God's care and let grace have its way in our lives and in our hearts. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are and for how you were at work in our lives and in our church and in our world. We thank you for the gift of Christ and for the spirit that he has given us that doesn't leave us alone or orphaned or afraid or without hope, but empowers us and inspires us to be the the people that you have called us to be, to be redeemed and to be set free and to take part in your ministry of reconciliation that you have called us to. Help us to understand that that action starts with us, but it also continues with us. That because of Jesus Christ, we can be reconciled to you and are called to be reconciled to one another. Give us the courage we need to do this work, to, to, to join you on mission of reconciliation so that we might experience that renewal and that peace and that joy and that shalom of the coming kingdom. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.